This program is pre-recorded. Well, let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Here we are again on a beautiful Monday. Well, I hope it's beautiful. We'll see. Let's begin, as we always should, with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us, by that same Spirit, to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort, through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, let us open the big book on the coffee table. We live in a society that is properly called Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. That's our civilization, Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian civilization. The four pillars of our civilization, Greek thought, Roman uh, law and and government, uh, Christianity uh, and and Judaism. That that Christianity and Judaism, as I always like to point out, that that uh, people say, well, uh, the church uh, and, and the faith uh, um, are sort of well uh, descended from Judaism, and I I don't think that that's the right way to say it. That Judaism. Rabbinic Phariseeism, more properly called, and Christianity share roots in the religion of the Temple of Israel and the, the religion of Israel. And I don't think you can underestimate that contribution. You know, I, I do worry so much about our society casting off its roots in in uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic. All of these things that we, we are upset about... Uh, um, uh, violence, um, uh, the, 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 the proliferation of, 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 well, sexual immorality, um, uh, the inequity between classes, the, uh, and on and on and on. Why are these things wrong? You know, uh, look at Greco-Roman society, if you, if you want to. Now, this is all kind of a prelude to what I want to say about the, the this reading from Genesis. <clears throat> but look look at um, uh, the what am I what am I ranting raving about here? If you were to take a, a serious look at Greco Roman society, 
it was barbaric in its own way. I mean, the gladiatorial contests that people watched others killing each other for entertainment, and they thought that was moral. They really did. That built up manly virtues in people. And if they saw blood and guts on the arena, it would it would make them stronger. Uh, the absolute uh, victimization of people through slavery. Slavery was not common. It was universal. It was more than common. At least half the population of the city of Rome and and possibly as much of the city of Athens in its heyday were slaves, people owned by other people. And you could pretty much do what you wanted to a slave. Um, uh, the, the, if you ever get to go to, to Pompeii, make sure you, you take advantage of it and really spend time looking at those ruins. Herculaneum is actually uh, <clears throat> more uh, available than Pompeii. It isn't as popular as Pompeii. So, uh, you see what ancient Greco-Roman life was like. The brothels, the slaves, the 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 arenas. The, it, it was barbaric. And the beauties of Greek and Roman civilization were only accented and amplified by the blessing of, of Israelite or Hebrew, well, I'll say Jewish and Christian morality. That we took that civilization and we applied... Uh, the, the, the tenets of, of the law of Moses to this society, and it worked. And now we're saying, who cares about that? Um, I just saw, was it, was it a while ago that, that uh, the premier of, of Canada took out uh, uh, any Christian symbols from, from, from the national emblem, that sort of thing? Nip it you in know, the bud! Well, yeah, I wish we would nip it in the bud, because... If we take the Judeo-Christian out of Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian, we're going to get Greco-Roman, and that isn't so good. So we're Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian, and I think I've shared with you that I did St. Paul is the first person in history who, of whom that can properly be said, that he was both uh, Greek and Roman and Jewish and Christian. He was raised in a Greek city, Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen by birth. He was Jewish. He was a Judean uh, by his his training and religious affiliation, and then he had a conversion to Christ. So he's the first person of whom it can be said that he was Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman. He is, in a certain sense, after Christ, the founder of our civilization. If we take St. Paul and we take Christ out of our civilization, we don't have a civilization anymore. Now, why am I saying this? The Lord said to Abram, now this Abram, this isn't Abraham, it's Abram. God changed his name. God is always changing people's names. That's why uh, we have baptismal names, that sort of thing, that the change is so complete in us when we give our lives to Christ that we actually are called by a new name. So Abram is before God changes his name. He says, go forth from the land of your kinsfolk, which is thought to be the Tigris-Euphrates Valley in what is today Iraq and, and Iran. Uh, leave your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you. The mission of, of Abraham was not uh, to a, a small uh, group of people. It was to the world. And 
the Lord started a process there that that reached, we believe, reached its fullness in, in Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of Abraham. But think about it. When you read the story that uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. This is uh, <clears throat> the claim that the Israelis make to the land of Israel. And I'm, I'm not getting into that politics. I, I remember I was being chased down the street by a peddler, a Muslim peddler in Bethlehem, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. And I turned to him and said, look, you've got everything that we Westerners love. You've got beautiful beaches and beautiful religious shrines. Uh, if you guys could just get along, you'd all be rich. And he looked at me, he said, rich? I said, rich. And he thought, and he said, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. They can't seem to realize that that land, if they were to live in peace, would do nothing uh, more than prosper. But as of this point, they haven't figured that out. Um, we pray for the Holy Land and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There, I'm not going to make. I'm not going to get into the politics of 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 that situation. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the descendants of Abram, Abraham, or Abraham, as we read here, is much greater than one single people. And now this is going to sound really weird. Now, an Orthodox Jew would would argue with me strenuously on this, but. I maintain you couldn't be what we call a Jew today. You couldn't be uh, an Israelite, certainly before Israel, uh, Jacob, whose name was changed by God to Israel, the grandson of Abram. But more properly, you could not be a follower of the law of Moses until the law of Moses was given on Sinai. Think about it. Um, I remember having this conversation with Rabbi Lefkowitz, and and I said, can you count Abraham as a Jew? Because he was before Sinai. And Abram said, we believe, or Rabbi Lefkowitz said, we believe that God, by a special gift, taught the law to Abram. And I said, where is that in Torah? Because every time I mention something about Christ the Messiah, Rabbi Lefkowitz would say, where is that in the Torah? Because you cannot, you know, if you say in a discussion with a Jewish person, well, it says in the book of Isaiah, if he's Orthodox, he's going to say, well, yeah, but that's Isaiah. That that a proof text has to come from the first five books of the Bible, um, the, the Torah, uh, the law of Moses. That's the inerrant, infallible part of the scriptures. So where where is that in the Torah? I asked, I asked the rabbi and he said well in the story of the three visitors who came to tell abraham that his wife would have a child in her old age it says that he offered them meat and milk to which i said yes and that's not kosher I said yes but it doesn't say that abraham ate it i thought that was talmudic reasoning to the squeeze to the fine point but I really think that it's important for us to understand that God's promise to Abram promises, and you'll notice it says, uh, it's in the singular, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. But then it goes on to point out as we read the story of Abram that that he had many, many other children uh, through other women after the death of Sarah. Uh, being an ancient patriarch, he had wives and concubines, that sort of thing. And uh, he, of course, uh, uh, through Hagar, had gave, gave birth to, to the Ishmaelites, uh, who are 
the the descend or the counted as the ancestors of the Arabs. Uh, so, uh, lo and behold, uh, there are many nations that are descended from Abram, and to me, this is the promise of the Catholic Church that that this universal organization, which is belongs to no single nationality, you know, it created Europe. Um, it is now creating other other civilizations. Uh, I really believe that. I, I think the effect of Catholicism in Africa is will be will be amazing in the long run. Um, Africa is the current battleground for the future of humanity for one reason because they're having children. Uh, they still believe in life, <clears throat> but it's very interesting to note that China is investing very heavily in Africa. And the Catholic Church is growing by leaps and bounds in Africa. Uh, the the struggle between Christianity and and Marxism, the next battleground, well, it's Africa. So, who knows? Who knows the future? I certainly don't. Thank God. But all right, the point I'm trying to make is this: this gift to the descendants of Abram, who include uh, people who are not counted as Jews today, uh, is the promise of of the church. Uh, um, it's, I don't know if that's a little convoluted, but let's go to the gospel, which is, which I find much, much more, <laughs> a little, a little vague or something about, about the first reading, but the gospel I'm much, much more uh, settled on. This is Matthew, the seventh chapter, the first verse to the fifth. Okay. This is not a bad translation. <clears throat> Jesus said to his disciples, stop judging that you may not be judged. Again, I'll share this point of grammar with you, that in Greek you have something called the present imperative and the aorist imperative. Nobody ever explained this to me. Uh, it was years after I had studied Greek and when I was teaching Greek that I figured it out, that the, the aorist always seems to be a past tense in Greek. It's not. The word aorist... I'm sure this is the most interesting part of the morning's discussion. The word aorist means without bounds, the basic form of the verb. So it often appears in a, it's used as a past tense. But how, if I used to think, how can you have a past imperative? Well, it wasn't a past imperative. So if any of you are teachers, don't assume that your your students understand your point of view. I have found that that sometimes great scholars are very poor teachers because they don't know what us mere mortals uh, suffer in trying to learn things. So uh, when I was teaching Greek, I, I, I tried to, to remember all the things that my professors had done to me and not do to my students. Um, you know, the, all the, the constant memorization of charts that made no sense, that kind of thing. So if you're a teacher, understand, try to take your, your student's viewpoint uh, and don't assume that they have the the insight into it that you do. Um, a good teacher can 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 see the subject from the viewpoint not only of the person who knows the subject, but the viewpoint of the person who doesn't know the subject. So let's get back to the text here. Stop judging that you may not be judged. There is a, 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 a an imperative in Greek, the aorist imperative, that's just like our imperative. Don't do it. In other words, don't do it. But there is something called the present imperative. Don't keep doing it. And that's what this is in. You know, this verse has caused more trouble. Oh, who am I to judge? I don't judge. I, you Don't judge me. 
know, Jesus said you shouldn't judge. Jesus did not say that. Jesus said, don't be judgmental. Don't be the person who keeps judging. Don't think the world needs your opinion uh, and, and uh, uh, can't live without it. You know, um, <clears throat> we read that, that uh, uh, was it Deborah who sat by the great oak uh, judging Israel? And what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I, Israel, that that color is not right for you. It 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 really clashes with your eyes. That's you know that's not what it means. That that to judge meant to give good counsel, to give advice. Are you the kind of person who's always kibitzing? Another nice Yiddish word that means to butt in where you don't, where you're not asked to butt in. You know, are you? Is do you think it's your job to critique everyone? And to let them know, well, you're wrong. This is what you should be doing. Uh, I, I got a big, I know somebody's always telling you what to eat. <laughs> what? And I've learned to say, no, I don't want to eat that. So Jesus always wanted you to eat seaweed and wood chips. And I'm saying, I don't like seaweed and wood chips. I'm going for the burger. So stop judging that you may not be judged. Don't be the person who thinks that it's your job to critique the world because as you judge, you will be judged. Uh, the, now, this is to me, the next line is an inviolable principle of the kingdom of God. The measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. That This uh, idea that, that, that the world is not treating me fairly, if you feel the world is not treating you fairly, stop and ask, how are you treating the world? Do you start the day with a smile and smile at people who you meet? <laughs> uh, they'll smile back, chances are. But the measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. The world in which you live is a reflection of, uh, of your attitude to that world. Now, that might not be true on the great international and cosmic scale, but in terms of your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, it's absolutely true that, that if you treat people shabbily, you can expect nothing but shabby treatment. The measure with which you measure will be measured out to you. Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the wooden beam in your own eye? This verse changed my view of Scripture, thanks to a, a Filipino kid in the confirmation class, Angelo. I read this to him, uh, why do you, uh, how can you say to your brother, let me remove that splinter from your eye while the wooden beam is in your eye? The kids started laughing, and I thought, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and then I really said, but it's funny. And I realized, it is funny. It's a joke. You know, can you imagine some guy with a stick in his eye saying, let me help you with that? It's funny. And... You hypocrite, you play actor. Remember the word hypocrite means play actor. Remove the wooden beam from your eye first. Then you will see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. Um, it's funny stuff. It's a joke. And uh, I've realized that there are lots of jokes in, in Scripture where we would not even notice them because we don't know the, notice the context. I think last month, and I just think it's really cool, I will I will say it again because I thought it was so fascinating that... that um, Herod the Great used a reed as his symbol. And Jesus said, what did you come out of the desert to see? A reed shaken in the wind? He was he was getting in a joke at the expense of, of Herod the Tetrarch. So there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of humor in Scripture, but it's not easy for us 2,000 years later and a number of languages 
you know, this is translated from Aramaic to Greek to whatever language we're reading it in. It's it's not that easy to follow. Well, we're going to take a break, and I regret to say we won't be taking calls today. I'm going to catch up on letters, and um, but we will be right back, and we will read some letters. Got a lot of good ones. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at relevantradio.com slash quest. There's no business like show business like no business I know. No business like it. Everything about it is appealing. Why, it's grand. Everything the traffic will allow. Where could you get that Good happy grief. Show business. Oh, yes, do not mistake religion for show business. That word hypocrite in the reading, you all know that that word means play actor. All right. You know, it's, it's um, you know, your religion is what you do when no one's watching. All right, let's go to letters. This is from Jim. A while ago, someone called in, it was quite a while ago, and asked um, uh, about circumcision and, and its purpose. And uh, and I maintained that it, it, it certainly solidified the separation of Israel from the world around it. And Jim, the physicist from Wisconsin, wrote in, uh, circumcision was not that uncommon in the ancient world. The Egyptians were doing it about the time of Moses, very likely early. Earlier, sometimes it was uh, done like the Jewish version, sometimes less extensive. Um, uh, I think the text they were questioning about, well, they asked, was Moses circumcised? And I said, yeah, most probably. I gather that Greek influence reduced, eliminated the practice, except among Egyptian priests and Jews. Um, <clears throat> oh, and also, the, the Egyptians didn't circumcise infants. Uh, it was later in life that you were circumcised and it was something apparently uh, done for uh, <clears throat> nobility. In any case, it appears that God was not creating a right of separation, but giving existing right a new meaning. Several sites, I went down the rabbit hole on this one, suggest that in Egypt it was a right for priests and nobility. Perhaps God's rule would have told the Israelites they were all priests and nobles. That's interesting. I'm going to have to ponder that, Jim. I think the effect of it was to separate uh, uh, <clears throat> the... Uh, the Israelites, certainly from, from people like the Canaanites, I don't believe the Canaanites practiced circumcision, and it would have, it would, uh, and certainly the Greeks, I mean, it would have separated them very strongly from the Greeks. And when you think about it, um, uh, it's, it's a very confusing period uh, in which Israel emigrated to out of Egypt and into the Holy Land, um, but the the... The era of King David was the, uh, pretty much the era of the, the heroic period in Greece, that, that the Trojan War was probably fought in hmm, 1200 BC. And uh, Greek influence at that point, I think that's the point at which Greek influence began to, to permeate through the Mediterranean world, especially the Eastern Mediterranean world, 
the sea peoples who were pirates may have been associated with the, the unrest in the Greek islands. It, it's a very confusing period in history, and one that people constantly try to to, to figure out. And uh, at any rate, I, I think that that's an interesting idea, that, that it was a, a ritual among the Egyptians, possibly for priests and nobles, and it gained a new significance among the Israelites. That's interesting. I'm really going to have to ponder that. Thank you, Jim. All right. Let's see here. Now, this is um, uh, from, from, let's see, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, <clears throat> um, <laughs> he listens in the car and then listens. I don't know. Remember, take what I say with a grain of salt. Um this is, uh, I think I may have read this letter, but I it, want to read it again. My, my kid's history, oh, there's the salt shaker. My kid's history teacher sent home a segment on history involving Martin Luther and indulgences, basically teaching the church allowed money to be given to the church in order to forgive one's sins and get into heaven. That's simply not true. We've never believed that. Um, there was a period in which uh, the donation of money uh, could win an indulgence, and that seems to have started... In the Crusades, uh, to the best of my knowledge, if you couldn't go crusading, you could donate money um, to to the cause. And I, I, there are some interesting sites uh, about the Crusades. And most people think the Crusades were a horrible, horrible thing. And, um, well, like any war, they are horrible. Wars are horrible. But the Crusades, though, they, they didn't go well. And they were much abused by uh, certain people like uh, Dondolo the Doge of Venice. He used the Fourth Crusade to wreak havoc on his enemies instead of win back the Holy Land. But the idea of the Crusade was originally an armed pilgrimage that, that the, the powers in the Middle East had forbidden pilgrimage to the Holy Shrines and even uh, tried to completely destroy all the Christian churches in the Holy Land, which was still in the year, you know, 1000, a fairly Christian place. Well, the the Greek emperor asked for the help of of the Western Christians, and well, the Pope said he would give an indulgence to those who went crusading. Now, an indulgence that's a commutation of a public or of a of a, of a private penance. And what is the point of penance? It's to undo the damage um, <clears throat> that sin causes. It's to repair the harm. Uh, for instance, if I break my neighbor's window uh, and he forgives me, I still have to fix the window. It, it, I still, that window still has to be repaired. Who's going to repair it? Um, well, uh, an indulgence is saying, okay, kid, we'll let you off easy. Just clean up the yard and I'll have somebody else fix the window. Uh, it, it's a, a commutation of a penance. You cannot win the forgiveness of sins by an indulgence. You can't get a free pass into heaven. You know, that that, that uh, people may have thought that, but that was not what the church taught. You know, I, I, perhaps you've heard me say that, that I don't care if you disagree with what the church teaches, just... Make sure it's what the church teaches that you're disagreeing with. Uh, what the what the church teaches is reasonable and and well thought out. Uh, it's the people who think they know what the church teaches that cause trouble. So, this his, this history teacher is not teaching history. 
um, but falsehood. So I don't know. Maybe you want to have them listen to this segment. Uh, I search for an understandable explanations of the history of indulgence, find nothing. Well, it's simply that, that um, if you committed a major sin, you were expelled from the church in the early days, and you were allowed to come in once after two years of, of, of very public penance, and confession was pretty much done in front of the whole congregation. Uh, we've limited it to the representative of the congregation, the presbyter, uh, but <clears throat> it was a, a long period of, of, of seeking prayer and, and demonstrating your sincerity in wanting to come back into the church. And when the church was legalized in the Roman Empire, uh, so many people wanted back in after different, different heretical uh, uh, movements and different um, persecutions that, well, the bishops were indulgent and said, okay, we'll, we'll commute your long public penance to something much simpler. Uh, and, but the money was, <clears throat> the issue of money, I don't think uh, came up until the Crusades. So, uh, and, and the church has since said, no, you can't, you can't, uh, uh, a financial donation doesn't win an indulgence. I believe that that, that is the policy. So there you go with that. All right, um, let's see here. Hi, Father. I am a Catholic wanting to bring my marriage into the church. My husband is from Spain, and we had to get married by a Protestant minister because we only had a very short window of time to get engaged and married due to immigration issues. Not enough time to do the Catholic marriage prep. Now, four years later, we would like to have our marriage convalidated. That's exactly the right word, convalidation. What I'm unsure about is my husband is this. My husband was baptized in the First Communion, but he was never confirmed. He took part in those sacraments because they are part of the culture of Spain, but he had zero catechesis and does not consider, uh, let's see, the computer just decided to block that. Okay. Did not consider himself Catholic. He is supportive of my faith, but does not want to be confirmed or participate. He agrees that any children we will have will be raised as Catholic. I'm 45, so children are unlikely to come, but you never know. Could our convalidation be uh, treated as though I am marrying a non-Catholic? Unfortunately, I don't think so. <clears throat> um, if he's baptized, he's considered a Catholic. Um, if I'm wrong, I, I would like uh, to, to know about that. Um, but no, he, he, I don't think he can be considered non-Catholic if he was in fact baptized in the Catholic Church. I pray he comes to believe, but I do not want to ask him to join the church on paper just for the sake of convalidation. Thank you. I, I would ask him. I would ask him to to uh, to to uh, uh, marry as if he were a Catholic, saying to him, "If if what we believe as Catholics is not true, what harm is it?" And on the other hand, it may be true. It may confer the grace of the sacrament to him. Uh, that that that's what you're looking for is the grace of the sacrament, and I think it's it's wonderful that you want to do that. But the grace of the sacrament is everything. And if he uh, is married in, in, in a simple church ceremony, you never know how it's going to work. And, you know, if you say, well, that would be insincere. No, it's very sincere because it's for love of you that he would be doing it. Um, I don't think it's hypocrisy or insincerity. He's very sincere in it. It's for love of you that he is doing it. 
So even though he, he would have to be married as a Catholic, um, then uh, I, I, I would still ask him to go through with it. I, I, I hope that helps a little. Let's see. All right. This is from a fellow sinister-handed individual, Jordan. The word sinistra in Latin means left-handed, from which we get the word sinister, and the right hand is uh, dextra. The the idea the the, the bad the bad uh, spirits hung around your left shoulder and the good ones around your right shoulder. We see that sometimes lampooned in, in cartoons. You'll see the devil on the left shoulder and the angel on the right shoulder. Well, the, the, the my fellow left-hander <laughs> um, came up with a question. The sign of the cross is customarily done with the right hand, but it is considered to be actively bad. But is it considered actively bad to use the left hand instead? Well, if you're superstitious and believe that the the demons are on the left side, well, but we're not. So, no, there's nothing wrong with making the sign of the cross, well, with the left hand, especially if your right hand isn't working. However, uh, it is more customary to do it with the right hand, um, um, I wouldn't say it's bad. These are just customs. There's no no biblical uh, or even practical reason not to do it. So there you go. It's, it's, it's just a custom. So, all right, let me do another letter. Oh, I'm, uh, this is interesting. I'm unable to listen to your show, but I'm very grateful for the relevant radio app and the podcast to catch up. Uh, yesterday's show, This oh, this comes from way back in April. Uh, you described how gold is refined, and the goldsmith knows that the gold is pure when he can see the reflection of his face in the molten gold. This brought to mind the refining aspects of purgatory's fire. The fires of purgatory will burn away everything that prevents the soul from entering to God's presence. And the key point for me is that we will be ready when God can see his reflection in us. Exactly. This is from Deacon Jim in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. You know... <laughs> I, again, an old story. I remember talking to an exorcist about the fires of purgatory. And I think it was the Council of Trent said that the fire in, in purgatory is true fire. I would go so far as to say that the fire we experience here in the world is not true fire. It is a hint at what fire is really like. And the fire of purgatory is the fire of God's love. That if you've ever been in love, it can be very fiery. Well, <clears throat> the fire of God's love will burn away everything in me that isn't light and love. C.S. Lewis treats this beautifully in, I believe, the last chapter of the Screwtape Letters. Just a beautiful treatment of purgatory. And though he was not a, a Roman Catholic, he seems to have certainly believed in purgatory. And I got the idea, I think, from, from Screwtape Letters, probably, that the judgment and purgatory are really the same thing in which every part of our life is examined, and the light of God, the infinite and, and searing light of God, is, is focused on every part of our life. And to me, purgatory is one of the most beautiful ideas in the Catholic faith, because what it means is that if we die in the Lord, if we die in a state of grace, that we do not cease to grow. We continue to grow and to become made like Christ. So... 
when I stand before God, I'm going to see God in all the perfection of his light and beauty. And believe me, if I am not ready to see it, um, it will burn. Think of, of you're in bed and somebody comes into the bedroom, switches on the overhead light. You say, turn that thing off. Our eyes are not accustomed to it. Um, the fire of purgatory is real. And I remember discussing with an exorcist friend of mine uh, this topic, and he said, yes, and, and God's love, uh, that's also the fire of hell. And I said, what? Yeah, if you have definitively rejected love, and infinite love pursues you, it will be horrible. I, I think that's fascinating that that the fire of God's love is the fire of purgatory. Okay, I can see that. But that it would be the fires of hell to, to hate the greatest reality possible? Uh, it's, it's an interesting idea. And, and um, well, I, I leave it for your perusal. But uh, thanks, I'm out of Deacon Jim that you listen. And uh, uh, there you go. Let's see here. Um, I think, you know, I think we can take a break and I'll come back with a word of the day and then we'll do some more letters. We try to explain the faith in a really conversational tone so that you can in turn explain it to others. That's the idea. Kale Clark. And we really do count on our listeners here at Relevant Radio to spread the word about what we do. So please share about these programs, whether it's the Faith Explained program, the Kale Clark Show, or any of the other great shows that we have on our network. It's great to share them on social media and conversation with friends. Bringing Christ to the world through the media. That's how the word spreads. Relevant Radio. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, invites you to check out The Quest, a five-episode video series on discovering our purpose and living it with courage. Start watching The Quest for free at relevantradio.com slash quest. How many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever Well, there you go. <laughs> Takes me back to my old hippie youth. Peace, love out. All right. <laughs> Let us return to letter. Oh, no, we'll do the word of the day. This is, I'm sure I've done this before, but every once in a while, it's probably good to say it again for people who haven't heard it. The word host is very confusing. Think about it. We have so many different meanings for the word host. The wafer that is used, the, the piece of unleavened bread that is used for Mass is called the host. And we treat the consecrated host with great respect and, and, and worship because we believe it's Jesus. But then we have words like, he was a wonderful host. And then we have the words like, uh, the host of armies is in holy, 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 Lord God of, Lord God of hosts. Three different meanings, three different words 
for host, what, what, what's that about? Well, the problem is there are three different Latin words that are all translated host. I have explained to you the time and alcohol theory of language development that time does for language over the long run, what alcohol does over the short run. It slurs it. Such a word as hostia becomes host, and hospice, the, the one form of which is hospitis, becomes host, and hostis becomes host. Huh? Yes. One word, a hostia, means uh, um, <coughs> uh, sacrificial victim. Hostis means, from which we get the word hostile, uh, can mean army or enemy. And the third one, hostis, hostis, hospitis, we get the word hospital from it, means uh, uh, to be a guest. Hence, we get the idea of hosting someone, guesting someone, inviting them to be our guest. All those words drop off their endings and end up the same word. So if you've ever been confused by why we talk about Lord God of hosts, we're not saying Lord God of, of uh, uh, Eucharistic wafers. <laughs> we're not saying uh, Lord God. We're saying Lord God of the armies. And there are armies of angels. Um, and if you've ever had to play host to someone, well, you are, you are their hospice. So I don't know if that helps anybody, but the three different uses of host, um, <coughs> excuse me, come from three very different Latin words. All right, let's go back to letters. All right, I got a letter here that I don't know that I can answer it because actually I'm as confused by it as the person. Juan, uh, I would like to, oh, good grief. I would like to stay anonymous. I won't mention Juan's last name. Good uh, grief. But I would like to stay anonymous. I am in a theology class, and the two professors have discussed the books in the Bible, which books fall into five different genres, myth, legend, etc. What bothers me is the word myth. I understand that the Bible is not a scientific book, but it does not contradict with science, even though Genesis is speaking at a time of limited knowledge when compared uh, to, when compared uh, to, to today. I don't argue with the limitation of knowledge at a time of Moses or those around the Israelites. The professors also critique the historical critical method, which I just said, I just said they're confused about the statement that the whole book of Genesis being in myth genre, this still explains the truth of God. Well, they use historical critical method to prove their statement of Genesis being a myth. Can you expand what the church teaches on the genres of the books in the Bible, specifically the genre of myth and legend? Respectfully, Father Nodal, <laughs> thank you for your show. Oh, dear. This is, this is going to be tough. Early on in the church, St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, and St. Augustine talked about the four different senses of Scripture, that, that they're... they're Scripture has four different different levels. Um, that's pretty much what we teach. Let me see if I can pull that up. Four different um, um, senses, I suppose you'd call it. The four different senses of Scripture. That that one is simply the literal historical sense. Uh, this happened. And it's to be read as if it happened. Then there is uh, an allegorical sense Um uh, that that 
this is comparing something uh, to to um, oh gosh, uh, it's comparing something to to uh, a, a modern a current a current situation that has an alleg- allegorical sense. Okay, let's see here. Um, where, where can I find it? Okay, no, I can't find it. I, dear voice in my head, you know this stuff. You're well-educated. Where can I find the four different senses of Scripture? Oh, goodness. You know what I'm talking about. The historical, the allegorical. Uh, yes, the anagogical sense, which this story leads you up to something higher. In other words, you look at the details of the story, but it lifts you to something higher. And what is the fourth sense? I'm not sure, but... The literal sense. Oh, the literal sense. That would be the historical sense. The literal sense. So we've all acknowledged since the earliest days that there are some things in Scripture that are parables, and some things that are poetry, and some things that are to be taken literally. And when you can't take something literally, it's in one of these different senses. So I I kind of summarize that by pointing out that that there. The Bible isn't a book. It is a collection of books. It's a library. And in that library, there is history, there is poetry, there is law, there are proverbs. So I think that that's an important uh, understanding that we've always believed this. Um, we It starts, I think, in the third century origin. Um, uh, it talked about the three senses of Scripture, the literal, the moral, and the spiritual, which he borrowed from the Jews. And then uh, Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine developed this doctrine, which became the four senses of Scripture. So, um, in which uh, literal, moral, uh, uh, spiritual, and I think he added the anagogical. The one, that's a Greek word meaning to lead you up, to, to lead you to contemplate higher things. So, we believe that. Now, the problem with myth, though, myth, myth is, it became very popular to talk about myth. And the St. Peter tells us, I think St. Peter in his, in his letter, you were not, you were not taught clever myths. Um, we don't believe that this is mythology. Mythology is once upon a time in a land far away. These things happened in, in, in real places, real moments in history. Uh, so we were not taught. Um, you can hear me clicking away clever myths. Uh, that's in, uh, I'll find the, the reference for you, uh, in Second Peter 1.16. Uh, the, the, uh, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, and the word in Greek is myth uh, in the text. So uh, to call this mythology is, is to talk about things that never were, uh, you know, the Zeus and the gods. These were myths. Uh, um, so we, we never, never in the word that they use in the text is, is, uh, is myth that, uh, you were not, uh, you didn't, we're taught clever myths. So one, I would say, no, this isn't mythology. This is, this is, is, um, these are, are reflections on things that actually happened. For instance, the flood really happened. It's reported everywhere. Now, the the dimensions of the flood, that sort of thing, well, there is maybe uh, um, uh, an embellishment of the story, but it's, it's to bring out the meaning of the story. Uh, these things happened. There was a Tower of Babel. There, there was an Adam and Eve. 
what we're interested the 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 biblical stories uh, are there to 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 teach us the meaning of these events uh, but these things happened there was a creation there was a flood there was a tower of babel there wasn't adam and eve even genetics talk about adam and eve that uh were all descended from one man and one woman they may not have lived at the same time but there was a first man, there was a first woman. Um, <clears throat> what the scriptures are talking about is what do these things mean in the in the stories of Genesis? And they're not myths. They're not simple fables. They're not made-up stories. They're meditations on stories that have been handed down. I, I don't know if that helps you, Juan, but um, it's, it's fascinating to me how people are so interested in, in debunking stories that well, maybe they should be learning from them instead. All right, let's see here. And I got another another note that I can perhaps do quickly. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's see here. I know how, how, how quickly. I am one of the upper room believers. This is, uh, I don't think they want to be uh, anonymous for Julie. Uh, my explanation of being born again, as the Lord told me, is if you're born in the world and you live your life by faith, then you experience the voice of the Holy Spirit within. You know, Julie, let me let me caution you here. Um, yeah, you can experience the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're supposed to. Um, it's born again. Many never know the voice inside that you'll have eternal life, this being born again of the Spirit, being born again also makes you more sustainable through trials and tribulation. I, I kind of think that there's a certain danger. I remember hearing a deacon say, I don't need bishops and priests and, and popes. I have the Holy Spirit. This was a deacon of the church. And to him, I could say, well, I don't need you because <laughs> I have the Holy Spirit, too. You know, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, you got to remember what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. We prophesy in part, we know in part. We are never going to know fully in this world. And this idea that, that uh, because I have the Holy Spirit within, I'm going to be 100% right. No, you're not going to be. That's the promise of Scripture. But on the other hand, if you genuinely seek God, and you, I, I believe that if you genuinely want to hear from God and not just hear from your own prejudices and desires, well, God will make up the difference. Um, there have been lots of great mystics who have been extremely wrong. That's because our knowledge is imperfect and our prophesying is imperfect. But speaking of prophesying... Drew is coming up, so don't go anywhere. 